0: Um, Psalm 32 is about our guilt, how we hide our guilt, and how God seeks us in the midst of that. The first point is this, if you cover up your sin, God won't cover up your sin. Okay, so if you cover up your sin, God won't. The second point is if you don't cover up your sin, God will. Okay, so if you don't hide your sin before God, He will hide your sin. So why don't we uh, stand up, we'll read the passage, and then we'll, we'll dive into this. This is uh, Psalm 32, a psalm of David, he still has fresh in his mind the huge, major um, screw-up from perhaps years um, before he wrote this with Bathsheba, getting her husband killed, sleeping with her, covering it up, all of that. So this is a real man's real life he's writing about. And he says to us, and God says to us tonight, blessed, happy is the person whose transgressions are forgiven Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord doesn't count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God, your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped just like in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. And surround me with songs of deliverance. And I will instruct you, and and this is now God speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but have to be controlled with a bit and a bridle, or they won't come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are up in heart, upright in heart, let's pray together. Our Father, this psalm meets us tonight um, as people who, in some degree or another, feel guilty about something. Some of us feel like we're drowning in guilt because something fresh happened. We remember it. We're trying to get away from it. For some of us, we feel kind of numb to guilt because it's just such an ever-present noise in our hearts, and our emotions. Get through that tonight, Father, we pray, in your power. Show us tonight that you're strong because you're able to pierce through the noise, to pierce through the guilt, and to persuade us and to argue with us that you really are a God who can be approached, that you really are a God who will separate us as far as east is from west from our sins. We need to believe that tonight. The Christian needs to believe that tonight. And the the person here tonight who doesn't know you, they need it just the same as the person who does know you. So we all stand on equal footing. No one higher than another here tonight. And you meet us where we are. So do this for your sake, we pray. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So uh, when it comes to medical diagnoses, There are some ailments or some things that happen to a person that are really obvious and really easy to diagnose. Like uh, you go to the health center, um, you got a sinus infection. All the symptoms are there. They're like, bam, here's some antibiotics, you're better. You got a broken leg, bam, x-ray shows it. It's obvious what's wrong with you. Let's fix it. But there are also ailments or diseases that are legendarily difficult to diagnose correctly. There's a few uh, in particular, certain kinds of diabetes, um, celiac disease, or some of you have that, um, gluten intolerance kind of things, lupus, if you've ever heard of that disease. Those in particular, and and a few others, are legendarily hard to diagnose because, take lupus for example, lupus affects so many different systems in your body and organs in your body and parts of your body. Um, that it has a super wide range of symptoms. For instance, um, imagine this scenario. Person A could come into the doctor with joint pain. And the doctor could say, okay, you have arthritis. Here's some uh, ibuprofen for that. Um, and, And person B can come in and they could say, I've had stomach aches for a long time now. And they say, well, it's probably a stomach virus. Let's wait it out or here's some medicine for it. Person C could come in and say, I've been having trouble with my vision. And they say, well, here's a referral to an ophthalmologist. You can get some glasses. And then person D says, I've been having trouble sleeping. Or I'm tired all the time. I just feel like a little bit under the weather all the time. They say, well, here's some sleep medicine. And all four of those people seemingly had innocent, benign symptoms. And they would have been sent on their way with a misdiagnosis. Because what could have been underneath all of that is the exact same disease in person A, B, C, and D. Lupus. Lupus. And so it's, it's one of those things that is um, regularly misdiagnosed or unnoticed in a person's body. Now, here's the thing. Did you know that you can have diseases of the soul, too? Disease is an old, I guess it's an old English word, dis-ease. Your soul can be at dis-ease as well. There are things that can make us sick. There are things that can make us die spiritually. And, uh, and some are easy to diagnose, and some are like lupus, where they, they, they affect so many parts of your emotions, so many pieces of your thoughts, of your soul, of your, even your body, that you can have the most seemingly innocent and unrelated symptoms happening in your life, and they trace back to something like guilt. Guilt, I would say, is kind of the lupus of the soul. Legendarily difficult to diagnose correctly. Regularly misdiagnosed. And often goes unnoticed. And just like that disease, it gets worse the longer it's not treated. And so uh, guilt is like that difficult to diagnose dis-ease or disease uh, of the soul. Here's a few examples just to kind of bring this into our own lives. Imagine three or four scenarios and how it has a seemingly innocent unrelated symptom that could perhaps trace back to guilt that we haven't dealt with, guilt that we didn't know what to do with, guilt that we feel caught in. Okay, so it's beginning to be the middle of the semester. Some of you are starting to feel this way. Some people didn't come tonight because they feel this way. Uh, This is how the thinking goes. Uh, We start thinking, um, I overcommitted, I have too much going on, I'm burned out, I said yes to too many people. And I need to start to dial it back. It could be just a scheduling issue. For a lot of us though, uh, we don't know how to do life unless we are overcommitted and super busy. Our schedule, our busyness, is an effort to mask over sometimes what's there is soul crushing guilt. And the busier we are, the more distracted we get, the less we have to think about what's going on deep down inside of us. The less time we have, to sit with our thoughts, to sit with a condemning conscience. And so we have learned over the years that when I am busier, I'm more at peace. And so the reason we feel burned out isn't because we have too much on our plate. It's because we have guilt deep down that's never been resolved and only is getting bigger. Think about this other scenario. Uh, Think about maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're thinking, man, I feel really apathetic or joyless in the Christian life lately. I feel like, where's the energy? Where's the passion? Where's the zeal that used to be there? Sometimes you'll notice that symptom and you'll diagnose it. Or maybe a friend will. And they'll say, well, it sounds to me like um, you're not doing enough, fill in the blank. Whatever spiritual discipline is precious to them. You're not praying enough. You're not reading your Bible enough. You're not going to church enough. You're not being still enough, whatever. Those are good things and that might be the cause. Um, But what could be beneath there and what is beneath there with a lot of us uh, is that we, deep down, don't believe that when God looks at us, he delights in you. You're a Christian. You're alive in Jesus. You've been forgiven, but deep down, you still feel dis-at-ease. There's a state of unease in your soul because you think, when God's probing eyes come upon me, Uh, There is shaming, there is condemnation, there is judgment. And so we don't want to be around him. We don't want to be around other people. And it takes all the joy, all the power, all the energy, all the zeal and the passion and the happiness out of the Christian life. And we live on the run. Seemingly innocent symptoms that have something deeper going on. Think about how we defend ourselves so furiously because we don't want another person to get close enough to me to see the real me. Um, We can do this positively, like I can use my humor or my personality or my extroversion to keep you a little bit far enough away so that we just have happy talk all the time. You never get to see me um, because I know I feel guilty. I feel racked and torn by guilt, and I don't want you to see it. Or you can use your introversion or some other hobby or whatever to retreat from people so that they can't ever get to see you. Now, the symptom that we feel about this is we begin to feel disconnected from other people. We feel like, man, that church isn't very welcoming or that ministry is not very nice. People there aren't really interested in getting to know me. And it could be that that's the truth. Or it could be that you're actively on the run from people. You've kind of got your arm out to keep them far enough away so that they don't see your guilt. And that's why you don't feel like anyone knows you or you don't know anyone or you're not connecting. Again, seemingly innocent symptom like lupus, the joint pain, the stomach pain, the vision problems that sometimes have a much deeper root beneath them. This last one's just for fun because we've all done this. This is a pastor, Joe Novinson. He said, um, at the beginning of every semester, professors say to you guys, on such and such a date, your term paper will be due. But it's easy to get sidetracked with different activities. And when the due date is tomorrow, you suddenly realize, oh, no. And you go to the teacher's office because you know your paper's not ready. And you say, professor, would you believe what happened to me? My aunt just got sick. The library lost the one book that I most needed. And the dog ate the draft of, the, of my paper right after I pulled it out of the printer. You say anything but the truth, hoping the professor will be merciful to you and give you a break. Probably very, very few of us have ever walked into a professor's office and said, you made an assignment several months ago. It was fair, and I understood it clearly. Unfortunately, I played too many video games and too much racquetball. I neglected to do what I should have done. I was undisciplined, and I procrastinated. Now I don't have the assignment done by the due date. I make no excuses. It was my fault. Do whatever you think is right. He said, he asked after that, why don't people talk this way? Why don't we operate this way? Because it's too painful to own up to our own guilt. And so it's always the printer. It's always the library. It's always the last minute thing that happened um, that threw us off at the last minute because we don't know how to deal with walking into someone's office and saying, I am wrong. I did this. Um, And I bear the penalty for it. Um, And so, here's, stand back. I just gave you a a few scenarios out at you to prove this point. Are you tracking with me that there can be tip of the iceberg issues like burnout or busyness or hiding from people or not thinking a place is friendly, but beneath the water that you don't see is this massive hunk of guilt that's never been dealt with, never been taken to God, who alone can deal with it? So it could be the problem behind a lot of other problems you've been facing for a long time and not understanding why they're not getting better. The Christian, the non-Christian, all of us. And so David has done us a really big favor, and God has through David, that in verse 3 and 4, he gives us not only the diagnosis, but the symptoms too. So you can kind of overlay your life with this and say, Does that, is that true for me too? Verse 3 and 4, uh, first what he gives us is the diagnosis he says, when I kept silent, which is a way of saying, when I, when I was hiding, when I was pretending like I was okay, like I hadn't done anything, when I was in denial, when I was quiet, when I wasn't talking about it to anybody or to God, when I was misdiagnosing my problems, then my bones were wasting away. He felt like he was rotting from the inside out. Can you relate to that feeling, by the way? What it's like to feel like you're rotting from the inside out? Everything on the outside looks great and normal. You can still talk the talk, but you just feel like a hole inside. That's just sucking everything out of you. That's what David said. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped like in the heat of summer. He's saying that our hiding from our guilt, our running from our guilt, our denial about it, or our misdiagnosing it has a huge cost has a really big impact on us in a really practical way. Like it affects our emotions, it affects our relationships, it affects our spiritual life, it affects everything. It affects what places we go to, what meetings we don't go to, what excuses we give people. And the reason why this guilt costs us so much is because while we hide our guilt, it never hides from us. I didn't know this till last night. But I found out that mountain lions, after they kill their prey, they'll bury it. If they're not hungry in the moment, they'll bury it. Or they'll they'll have a little bit, and then they'll they'll save it for they don't know when the next time they're going to eat. So they'll bury it. I saw a picture of a mountain lion kill in Cloudcroft. um, And this lion, someone took a picture out of their living room window. There was this mountain lion sitting in a lawn. And right next to it was literally this like two and a half foot tall hump of dirt. And there was like antlers poking out of one side and feet poking out of the backside. And I'd never, I'd never knew this. So a mountain lion had killed like an elk and buried it. Except what I mean by buried is like, I mean, you, you're like, what's that gigantic hump of dirt right next to you, mountain lion? I don't think you hit it as well as you thought. That's how we are with our guilt. We all try to hide it. To deal with it later when we have more time or more wisdom or whatever else. And everybody else can oftentimes see it. Our parents can see it. Your professors know your printer didn't break the night before. People know why you're avoiding them. People know why you're not showing up at a certain place. People know why all of a sudden you're a wall around the house. Um, we see each other's guilt. We we're in on the joke because we have the same stuff in our heart. And we are also hiding giant elk, giant guilt elks that we've buried and hope you don't notice we say, look at the beautiful lawn. And you're like, yeah, that's rather large. But there's another reason these guilty feelings don't go away so easily. God is in on it. He has something to do with the guilty feelings not going away. Did you catch that when I read it earlier? And this is, this is by the way, what I meant when I said, if you cover your sin, God won't. So if you bury your sin in the lawn or your guilt in the lawn and say, nothing to see here, I'll deal with this on my own later, God won't play ball. He'll be like, why do you have an elk buried in your lawn? That's weird. The way he does it is by exposing the things that we hide. And the longer we wait to bring it to him, the more painful it gets and the more our lives begin to fall out of control. Now, why does God kind of keep his finger on the wound to make us feel the pain. He does it. If you're a Christian, the reason God will allow great pain to come into your life. In circumstances about guilt and this kind of thing. The reason he will allow that is because your relationship is strained or estranged. And he's not content with that. And so he brings whatever frustration or pain or confusion or a sense of need into our lives and he lets it stay until it does its its desired object which is to bring us back to him David said I I was my bones were wasting away day and night I was groaning your hand was heavy upon me David traced his feelings of guilt back to the hand of God and he said God I see you're the one that's got your finger in my guilt to make it a little more painful so that I will pay attention to it and run back to you If you're a Christian, you might be thinking, Ben, I thought I was forgiven. Why are you talking like my relationship with God is now strained? There's a difference. If you think that, you're confusing two two aspects about sin and forgiveness. In terms of there is a legal forgiveness where God has truly, as a judge, declared you innocent and righteous. You measure up now. The law, the Ten Commandments, all the things that we break regularly look at you and can't find anything lacking. So in that regard, you measure up. You are legally innocent. But in a relational sense, we can and do strain the relationship with God. We can, in a sense, make him weary. We can weary him with our sin. The Bible says it all the time, how God grew weary with his people's sin. Okay? So in a relational sense, you can stretch and strain that. And God cares about that. And because we don't often care about it, he acts. And the way he acts oftentimes, and this is a picture of it, is... Through bringing pain, a painful conscience, a guilty conscience—that people have called guilt—that it's the snooze, it's the alarm that goes off in your head, and you have to constantly hit snooze on it because you don't know how to get—you don't know how to get it, get it to stop screaming, and so you just hit, I'll, "I'll deal with you later." I'll deal with you later, and it comes back, and it comes back, and it comes back, and that's the Lord not letting us get away with running away from Him. This is what He means in verse eight: "I will instruct you." I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. That's the way a husband speaks to a wife or a wife speaks to a husband. Think about this. My marriage to Anna doesn't break if I lose my temper and snap at her, right? It's not like that ends our relationship. I'm still married to her, but it does strain our relationship. And until we, I go to her and I say, Anna, I'm sorry, I don't know... I was mad about this other thing. I took it out on you because I was only thinking about myself. Will you forgive me? Until we have that conversation, she's, we, our relationship's going to look like your relationships with your roommates, your parents, your boyfriends, girlfriends, everything else that are not reconciled right now. You avoid them. You don't talk to them. There's an elephant in the room. It's really weird. It's really awkward, right? Guys, it's the same way with God. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away inside of me. There was an elephant in the room and until you looked at it and talked about it with the Lord the relationship was strained. It was weird and we know what this is. It's why we, we don't talk to God. We kind of run away from Him when we feel guilty for these reasons and God has put on you a leash called a conscience to bring you back to Him to uncover our sin. Think about this. Hunger should lead you towards food not away from it, right? Guilt should lead you towards God, not away from Him. If you know what kind of God you're dealing with, if you believe what kind of God the Bible says He is, then guilt, just like hunger, can lead you back to the thing you lack. It would be stupid for us to say, I'm hungry, I should run away from food. Just as it's foolish to say, I'm guilty. I did this, I'm not a good person, I'm not a good friend, I don't love people well, I don't love God well. If you feel those hunger pangs, those conscience pangs, why run away from the only person who can do something about it and free you from that? The only person who can feed you. But we do, right? This psalm's kind of getting into our insanity and straightening things out. And I bet when you just heard me say that, you're like, Meh, why didn't I ever think? That's, that's common sense. I get hungry, I go to food, I get guilty, I run the other way. Why? I don't know. Well, I do know. We don't know what kind of God we have. So pain is something that he brings into our life. It's when you don't feel pain that you should get a little worried. Paul says in Romans 1, it is when people no longer feel a guilty conscience over what they're doing and the decisions that we've made, then is when you should feel a little scared. God handed them over to their cravings, handed people over to their sin, handed them over to their uh, sin. And they didn't feel bad about it anymore. They pursued it headlong and called it good. That is a mark of curse. A lack of pain, a lack of conviction over our sin is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. But even if that's you tonight, you say, I'm numb. I used to do the church thing. I haven't done it in a while. Maybe I'm interested coming back around. Um, and, And that's you. You don't feel anything anymore. Let me ask you the question does that not just add one more thing to the list that you desperately need from this God? Why would you use your lack of feeling as a reason to run away from him? It's just one more reason you need him all the more. You need him more than the people who do feel a guilty conscience. You need him quicker. You need him more. You need him more desperately. So you should be running faster back to him, not further away from him because, man, I wish I felt more guilty about what I did. My conscience is seared. I'm numb. So what? That's another great reason you need Jesus Christ to wash you, clean you, free you, and speak over you the word innocent. The second point is almost getting obvious right now. Why does God allow our bones to waste away? Why does he put his hand heavy upon us? Why do we groan day and night in these moments where we will not own up to it before him. The days when we hide, why won't he let us hide? When we cover our sin, why won't he play ball with us? It's to bring us back to himself. And he says to do it quickly. This is the stuff about the horse and the mule. This is God talking, not David. He's saying, sons, daughters, the first feeling, the first tinge of guilt is when you get to run to me. Not three weeks later when you don't feel it anymore so you feel like you're more acceptable. The first tinge, the first moment your conscience grabs hold of you and says, not so fast. You shouldn't have said that about that girl. Or you just lied to your professor. You just told him a completely made-up story to get an extension. In that moment, that's when you get to go back to God and to say, Father, you just saw what happened to You know why I did it. Forgive me. That's the moment. That's why he's saying... In the day when he may be found, let the faithful pray to him. And he says, don't be like the the horse or the mule, that it takes a person like putting their entire body weight, introducing pain in their mouth just to get that thing to move. It doesn't have to be that way. We can be people. We can be mature enough to, at the first tinge of pain, the first tinge of guilt, the first tinge that something's not right on my insides, we can go back to God, deal with him, and talk about it. And the reason we can run fast. Is because we know what kind of God he is. And this is the last thing. That if you uncover your sin. If you stop hiding. If you talk to God. About what he already knows. If you t- tell him. Yes there is a giant elk. Buried right behind me. That's poking out on all sides. When you begin to come clean with him. He will cover your sin. And this is the ironic thing. David intended for this to sound like he's saying two things out of different sides of his mouth. He, uh, David's a poet. He's, he's playing with words here. He said in the earlier part of this, when I covered up my sin, God wouldn't let it remain covered. Later on in the psalm, he says, but when I uncovered my sin, God covered it up. Right? Those words are all over Psalm 32. This uncovering and this covering. And the point is this. You and I will only uncover our sin when we see God as the coverer of our sin. You'll never pray to him. You will never be honest. You will lie to his face. You will hide. You will excuse yourself. You will rationalize. You'll quibble with him about what is sin and what is not, even though he's clearly told us. You'll never be honest until you see him as the coverer of our sin, the washer of our guilt. Because otherwise he's going to be a threat to you. He's going to be a terrifying threat to you. And so when we believe what Peter read earlier, as, far, as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as east is from west, that's how far the Lord has separated his people from their sin. You ever thought about those metaphors? God uses those metaphors because they're unquantifiable. You can't get a tape measure and measure as far as the heavens are above the earth or as far as east is from west. It's infinite. That's the point. God is saying there is never going to come a day, not a billion years from now, where you stumble upon something that he failed to wash or forgive or release you from. It is total. It is infinite. East to west, south to north, earth to heavens. Stop trying to measure it to figure out when his love or his patience is going to run out. He's saying it is infinite. That's how big it is. And the more you believe that, I guarantee you, you will find your, the, the gap of time between failing and confessing will get shorter and shorter. Make sense? This is the same with our relationships. The more you love your friend, the more you trust your roommate, the more history you all have together, right? It's easier to confess to them, right? There's a sense in which it's harder because you're more heartbroken. I can't believe I did that to you. I'm so sorry. But you're quicker to go to them because you're not worried about the relationship blowing up and falling apart, Right? David is saying, guys, guys, ladies, this is the way it is with our God. David uncovers the sin because he knows God has already covered it. One story about Philadelphia, and then we end. When I lived in Philadelphia, um, I found this fascinating. I lived in West Philly, uh, and in Philadelphia, I think the statistic was something like 60% of people who live in the city owe oh, back taxes, which means they have not been paying their taxes and there's like warrants out for their arrest because they didn't pay the tax man. And they've got like debts and interest and penalties of like $50,000. These are poor people. They can't afford it. And so the city, um, they came down heavier and heavier with the law. They, a, a few years ago before I got there, they said, look, if we find out you haven't been paying your taxes... You get this added penalty. It's not just 50000 now. It's 10% too. So it's $55,000. And a, and a half a year in jail. And we'll take your house. And guess what? Less and less people came forward and said, yep, I'm guilty. Who wants, who wants to say, I would like a half a year in jail and $5,000 more? Okay, so the next mayor did this. When I was there, he said, the city of Philadelphia hereby cancels all debt, all interest, and all penalties are done. If you come to the city tax office and fess up, we will eliminate every single thing that's on against you in the books. The warrants, the penalties, everything. It's wiped clean. And we will work with you on setting up a payment program going forward so that you can start to become a citizen who's contributing to the system like everybody else. And here's the cool thing. People came out of the woodwork They said, I haven't been paying my taxes in years. Or I didn't even know I wasn't paying my taxes. What's a tax? But people who on a Monday thought they were going to lose their house, their life, their freedom. On a Tuesday when all of that was wiped out. And by the way, that debt doesn't go away. That's like tens of millions of dollars that the city had to absorb and say, we're going to pay the cost on this. Do you know that that's the way God elicits your repentance? That's the way he calls you tonight out of your hiding. Is he tells you up front, all debt is canceled. All penalties are erased. All threats are off. Come to me. He doesn't say, come to me and then we'll see what we're going to do. We'll see if we can work out something or, or you better sweat it. We'll see if you get off or you don't get off. The gospel Of Jesus Christ is that God has taken the debt upon himself to liberate you to come out of your house and stop hiding and it's not just with him and us it's with each other too your small group will become the most beautiful honest candid brutal and beautiful place when you start believing that you're truly forgiven because you'll start talking about the debts you have that Jesus paid But as as long as you think there's a penalty, as long as you think there's a debt, as long as you think God is on the outs with you, you're staying holed up in your basement. That's going to be the rest of your life for you. Your bones wasting away, the Lord's hand heavy upon you, and God is saying to you, it doesn't have to be like this. Don't be like the donkey. Don't be like the horse. Today, tonight, at the first tinge of guilt, run to him. You get to. And you can because of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you say to us tonight, blessed, happy, content, at peace is the guy or the girl here whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the person whose sins are covered by God. Blessed is the one that you don't count their sin against them. And so you tell us tonight, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. You are our hiding place. You are our refuge. And you surround us with your unfailing love. Make it true of us, even starting tonight, that we would be sons and daughters who run to you. And if we don't know you, if we've spent our whole life running to you and we have never looked to Jesus by faith, tonight persuade us that you are the God who comes to our door, who offers to cancel all debt, and all we do is open the door and fall in your arms. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.